Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Gut health, bloating, body fat, cardiovascular disease, and even Alzheimer's and the gut-brain connection. We'll discuss it all on today's episode with Dr. Mary Pardee. Mary is a functional medicine doctor who specializes in integrative treatments for gastrointestinal conditions such as bloating, constipation, IBS, and preventative longevity medicine. She's also the founder of Modern Med, a telemedicine and virtual wellness company that provides medical and health services to clients across the world. And today, Mary shares everything you need to know about healing your gut and optimizing your body comp, plus sneaky gut health offenders and what we're still getting wrong about elimination diets. So when it comes to digestive issues, many think about eating too much or eating the wrong foods, but you say, not eating enough can cause digestive issues. Tell us more. Yeah, it's it's not talked about enough in my mind. And I want to touch a little bit on eating disorders and disordered eating when it comes to this, because it's so prevalent. Um, just to like throw out some numbers, about 9% of women at some point in their life will have an eating disorder that's actually diagnosable. But the more staggering number is that 22% of adolescents and children have disordered eating patterns. And I know that that goes past adolescence into adulthood as well. It's really, really common. It's so common for women to be restricting their food intake, especially when it comes to the integrative functional medicine space where we all want to be healthy. Um, I actually think I've heard you say this, but a lot of the times we're talking about what, what to take out of our diet, like what to remove from what we're doing. And that definitely comes when we talk about nutrition. It's like, what what shouldn't we be eating? What do we need to take out to make us healthier, right? And in this, we can definitely develop restrictive eating patterns. And so it is so common for me to see women that come in and a big part of their GI issues is actually because they're over-restricting and under-consuming both calories, but as well as just volume of food when it comes to fiber intake. And that can have really deleterious effects on gastrointestinal health. And so when we look at like the severe end of the spectrum in terms of anorexia, so anorexia and eating disorders in general are the second most deadly mental health condition, just second to opioid addiction, which we know is a huge epidemic right now. Um, but about every hour, one person dies from an eating disorder. And 98% of people that have an eating disorder meet the criteria for at least one functional bowel disorder, IBS being the most common, but you have functional bloating, constipation, and other things as well. And it just really shows that if you're constricting or restricting your calories to an extreme amount, that malnutrition and then the electrolyte imbalances that can take place can actually change the motility, the movement patterns in our gut. And so when we see low caloric intake, you know, we're looking at a few different things, but from a physiology perspective, it's going to affect your thyroid. It's going to affect your ability for your muscles to be able to contract and move like the intestines need to. It causes delayed gastric emptying, which means that food kind of just sits in the stomach and doesn't process through, it can lead to feelings of like dyspepsia or just feeling full after meals, not feeling well, feeling like things are just sitting there. Um, and in my clinical practice, while, you know, I don't treat a ton of people with diagnosable anorexia nervosa or eating disorders, I still see this as a really prevalent thing that women come in with who are just under eating or over restricting their food intake. 
So the elimination diet is pervasive in in a rate of health, and it makes a lot of sense why. I'm having a gut issue, so let's start to eliminate some things and see what happens. Identify the root cause. It makes a lot of sense. It helps people identify foods that are possibly triggering some GI issues or autoimmune issues or just like general fatigue or malaise. So it's effective. But at the same time, I hear you loud and clear, we just start eliminating this and eliminating that. And next thing you know, I can't eat anything. One, I'm not a lot of fun to to go out to eat with. But two, it it becomes a very slippery slope. How do you think about, you know, because elimination diets are, are effective. So how do you think about that balance for someone who's, you know, having some GI issues? A lot of people are having type those types of, uh, you know, gut issues, and they're trying to figure out how do I get to the bottom of this? But at the same time, I don't want to potentially develop a, you know, maybe go a little too far. Yeah, no, it's such a great question. And it's a fine line. So it's not something that is super obvious. But first, if you're working with a practitioner, Ideally, your practitioner should be well-versed in this, and they're going to help you to determine if you've had um, risk factors for this type of issue in the past. So, you know, women who have had a past history of eating disorder or restrictive eating or low body weight or even other things that are associated with it, like obsessive compulsive disorder, perfectionism, things like that, um, are at higher risk for going down the wrong path with these types of things. Men, men as well, too. So this happens to men um, for sure. But we want to see where you fall on that spectrum in terms of could you go through an elimination diet, you know, that's lasting one month or so and take the things out, but then put the things back in. So the, the biggest thing that I see is that people will do elimination diets. They take all of it out and they keep it all out. That's not a true elimination diet. We never go back. Now you're just on a restrictive eating pattern for the rest of your life. And that's not good for your gut microbiome in terms of diversity, but social health is going to be definitely affected. You're going to be, you know, it's hard to go out to parties or out to eat and things like that. Your quality of life is just affected at that point. A real elimination diet should be that you're taking things out and then you're reintroducing them. The reintroduction period is where you find out, is this actually an issue or is it not? Um, And so I think it's best to do this with an RD or somebody who has a lot of experience doing these diets with people to make sure that you are not keeping things out that shouldn't be kept out for a prolonged period of time. My goal with all my patients is I want you to be able to eat the most diverse diet possible, including like dairy, gluten, like there's all these things that I think that we deem as, you know, really bad for our health when in, in reality, for a lot of people, they're just fine for them. I love it. Tell tell us more, dairy and gluten, please. <laughs> yeah. So if you had talked to me 15 years ago, I would have, I was in the camp of, you know, dairy, gluten, like, I don't think that those are good for you. Did all of my training, have learned so much, my own personal journey as well as has taken me here. But um, we know that gluten can be an issue for some people. And, you know, we have celiac disease that's diagnosable, right? We can figure that out pretty quickly. Then you have non-gluten or non-celiac gluten sensitivity that exists as well. So there's some people that don't do well with it, but there are many more people that do just fine with it. In my clinical experience, a lot of people do totally fine with gluten. You know, I come from the world of... um, integrative gastro. And so this is a really common subject for me to talk with patients about, but wheat 
is different than gluten, right? Gluten is a protein found in wheat. Wheat is on the list of FODMAP. So it's higher in something called fructans, which are fermentable carbohydrates that can cause issue, especially for people with irritable bowel syndrome. So there's a way to go through that whole process and to determine, okay, is the fructan class of FODMAPs an issue for me? And in which case we may just take that one out. But we should be able to reintroduce a whole bunch of other things. And there's a whole slew of people with IBS that do totally fine with fructans and wheat. And so it's really just determining which ones that you're sensitive to versus you can keep in your diet. But it should be a methodical process where you know what you're going through and you're taking it out and you're reintroducing it in a way that you should be. This is a whole caveat to what we were just talking about before, which is if you've had a history or have a current eating disorder, an elimination diet is not going to be something that I would ever suggest for you at this point. If you go through and you heal those issues and you've worked with a psychologist and you're in a better place, then perhaps, but it's a really slippery slope when you've had any history of this disordered eating. So I'm going to come back to bread because this is an important one to many listeners, including myself. What's your favorite bread? Sourdough. I got I got sourdough loaves on the, on the shelf right now. I love sourdough. Yours? Uh, oh, sourdough, of course. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? I also love a good, a good sourdough rye. I, I do like rye. Okay. You kind of just lost some points with me. I'm not a rye girl, but I respect it. I respect it. I know so a good good sliced wild salmon on on rye toast with like a little bit of uh, uh, organic cream cheese goes a long way. Okay, okay. Dairy. This one I, I want to spend a little bit more time on. Uh, we feel that dairy is making a comeback. Uh, we wrote about this in our our well being our annual well being trends. I think partly because I think you know, this idea of, of we're we're not eating enough, uh, specifically protein specifically protein when it comes to women, how critical it is. And high quality dairy, uh, for many of our listeners, myself included, grass-fed dairy can be a great source of protein. And a lot of people struggle with how do I get enough protein? I don't really can't eat, I don't love or I can't eat, you know, beef or chicken or or fish every meal and I'm, uh, or eggs and and the, the it's undisputable that the highest quality protein come from comes from animal products so grass-fed dairy uh in the form of yogurt or cottage cheese great sources of protein yeah and so i i think dairy is something that a lot of people can keep in their diet and feel just fine there's definitely people that have lactose intolerance and then those people, we take it out. And those are also the people that come in and they have bloating and diarrhea. And so we take dairy out and their symptoms would resolve if that was the issue, right? So it should be something that's pretty easy to determine. Um, What I often see is that people just think it's an issue and they take it out, but they still have all of the same issues going on. So it didn't solve anything taking dairy out. And in those cases, I'm saying, hey, maybe we should reintroduce it because you still got the same issues going on and you're still not eating dairy. So it doesn't seem like that's the thing for you. Um, and, and there's a test that you can do for lactose intolerance too. So that, you know, we test a lot in our practice. And so if we need a test to determine it, then we can do that. But I think dairy can be part 
of a well-rounded diet. There's things like Greek yogurt, cottage cheese that are super high in protein. And I totally agree with you. Protein is something that we need to be eating more of for the majority of people. Um, most people are under consuming it. And hopefully we'll talk about like lean body mass when it comes to that. But it's one of the things that I I probably talk to like 98% of my patients about eating more protein. And there's dairy sources that are amazing sources of protein, including whey protein. You know, that whey protein, when you have an isolate or hydroxylate, you basically taken out all of the lactose in it. So most people who are even dairy sensitive can usually tolerate whey protein. Um, however, it is one of the most anabolic protein sources that we have available to help us to build and maintain lean body mass. We have an amazing grass-fed whey protein, which will be out in the market by the time this podcast airs. So send me your address. We will send it to you. You will love it. It is completely clean. I was going to say, I'm going to be your first customer. I'm in. We will send it to you. So if you take a step back, you know, there are some people who are walking around who just feel off, fatigued. And they know something's off and they, 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 maybe they do an elimination diet or they do some experimentation. They go see a doctor like yourself. And there are other people who, who are optimizers who, you know, generally feel pretty good, but always want to feel better. For those people in the second camp, how can one assess like their overall gut health? Is it uh, a stool test? Is it uh, like what's, what's available right now? Yeah, great question. So we're talking about the optimizers, which is a big, it's a different category than people that come in with GI issues, right? So first of all, I, I now see these people because I'm doing mostly preventative medicine at this point. And I love talking about this stuff. And I think that there is so much misinformation out there when it comes to the world of GI on this specific topic. So stool tests, when we talk about stool tests, there's two different kinds of stool tests. We can talk about a stool test where you'd go to Quest or LabCorp and your doctor's really testing you for something pretty specific. They're testing you for a parasite. They're testing you for Giardia, you know, H. pylori. They're testing your calprotectin levels because they think that maybe you have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Um, so there's things that we can do through conventional lab companies. I order those all the time for people with actual issues to determine the cause for it. On the other hand, we have a different group of stool tests, which we call comprehensive stool analysis that look at the microbiome. And so these are usually direct to consumer. There's many companies out there that are selling these directly to people without a doctor's order. And then there's there are functional medicine doctors who are ordering these comprehensive stool analysis for their patients as well. I am not an advocate for those tests for several different reasons. Um, but the big one is the gut microbiome is something that we are still learning so much about. It's one of my areas that I'm so fascinated with it. I've been researching this, you know, just in terms of reading all the literature for years now, and it is absolutely incredible. However, we have to realize what we know and what we don't know. And right now we do not know what the optimal gut microbiome should look like. We just don't have that data. And because of that, doing a comprehensive analysis of the gut microbiome can't give us much tangible information because if we don't know what it should look like, 
we also don't know what it shouldn't look like. And so we're given this report and, and most of these companies are also cherry picking which different species or strains they're giving us information for. So we're getting a list of like 30 or 40 different um, bacterial species that exist. When in reality, there are so many more than that. So you have a hundred trillion microbes in your gut. You have many more species than 30 in your gut. Um, not to mention that when we talk about bacteria, we really should be talking at the strain level. So the strain level is going to be a specific um, number usually associated with our bacterial species, but it's, it's one step more specific than a species level. And this is where we see different functions of those bacteria. And these tests aren't looking at that. They're usually looking at the species level. So they're just not specific enough. They're not actionable in my mind. And they don't give us a good idea of where we should be going just because we don't have the information. Um, so I know I just went on a soapbox. So you can clear that. That's something that I'm passionate about. No, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I've, I've done the stool test and I didn't find it particularly helpful. And my, my doctor, Frank Lippman, who's been on the show, his view was, look, it's a snapshot. And the microbiome changes so quickly. We all know that. Like if you change your diet in a couple of days, your your test will change and maybe you want to retake it, but it's just a snapshot. Like it's not, you know, I, I think there's so much excitement about the microbiome, but in terms of the testing, I agree. I don't think we're, we're quite there yet in the same way we are with say a lipid panel, a cardiovascular lipid panel and like cardiovascular testing. Yeah, really well, really well said too. It's like, I think we're going to get there too. So I think there's going to be a time where we know everything about it. We know what should be there and what amounts should be there and what shouldn't be there. And at that point, it's like, yeah, let's dig into it. I just don't think that we're quite there yet. So you mentioned body composition. And I think this is an important topic because it seems to me like we've been conflating weight with body comp. And I, I, I see that beginning to change as the conversation is shifted towards building lean muscle mass, consuming protein. Because if you're going to go ahead and, and measure that, whether it be a DEXA scan or in body or what, there are various ways to do it, you're going to look at actually your lean muscle mass and your fat versus the scale. So can we talk about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want to we we missed the part about what I would recommend for optimizing gut. I don't know if we want to go back to that or not. Let's go. Let's go there right now. Okay. Okay. Because uh, I didn't want to leave the action rules out for people. Sure, sure, sure. And then we'll go to the body comp. Yeah. So there are things I would recommend in terms of if you're healthy, you want to stay healthy and you want to really focus on your gut health. So for those people, the biggest things are going to be increasing fiber in your diet. So increasing fruits, vegetables, there's also things like psyllium husk, flax seeds, quinoa, all of these things that are high in fiber. Those are going to be the food sources for your gut microbes to consume so that they can then go and produce the products that help our human body. The other thing is prebiotic fiber. So along that same line, we also have foods that are really high in prebiotic fibers, also fuel sources for these microbes, things like Jerusalem artichokes, garlic, onions. Some of these things aren't tolerated with people with GI issues. So you'd work with your doctor on that piece. Um, and then the other thing is going to be diversity of your diet. So making sure that you're not eating the same exact vegetables every day. So if you can go out and have a new thing from the grocery store or the farmer's market once a week, just to give your 
or bacteria exposure to different phytochemicals and different fiber sources that helps to increase the diversity of the gut microbiome. And then last, but certainly not least, this is my number one thing actually for people is increase your intake or start eating fermented foods. So these have been around for thousands of years. We're talking about, they started around 7,000 BC. We have records of people consuming fermented foods. They're things like um, sauerkraut, kimchi, kefir, fermented yogurts, and things like that. These are going to be rich sources of actual probiotics that help to increase diversity of your gut microbiome, as well as help to reduce a lot of inflammatory cytokines that we found. So Stanford did a really interesting study recently, and they saw that 19 inflammatory cytokines were reduced in people who are regularly consuming fermented foods in their diet. So, so I, I love fermented foods. I love sauerkraut. I've been starting to have, is it kefir or kefir? You are asking the wrong person. I say kefir, but you could be right. Kefir. It sounds fancier. I, I have no idea, but I've, I've started, I've started there as well. And something I've noticed is it's helped with bloating. And I think blo bloating is a bigger topic I'd love to discuss with you. How does one know if their bloating is normal or if maybe there's something else more problematic? Yeah, such a great question. Um, so some amount of fullness after a meal is completely normal. So that's not pathological. If you consume, let's just say, a softball size of food at your meal, that softball has to go somewhere and it goes into your stomach and there's going to be some pushing out of the stomach that happens with that. And after a meal, that's completely normal. Nothing's wrong. That should resolve in about an hour. And then you should kind of be back to your normal. And then you go a few hours then you eat again, then you get it again. And then it goes back down within an hour. That is not considered bloating. What we consider bloating is a fullness, a distension, a discomfort that interferes with your quality of life and does not resolve about an hour after eating. So the most common thing I'll see in my practice is that you wake up, you feel like you have a flat stomach, and then you have breakfast. And after breakfast, your stomach feels a little bit distended. You feel gassy, you feel bloated, um, and it doesn't go anywhere. And then you eat lunch, and then it gets worse, and then it starts sticking out worse. And now you actually have some pain and some discomfort, maybe some cramping. And again, it doesn't resolve. It gets worse. And then at dinner time, and then usually what people will tell me, before I go to bed at night, I feel nine months pregnant. I feel kind of gross. Like I feel like I can't eat anything else because I don't even have an appetite because I feel so full. That's what we call bloating. So that's abdominal fullness, discomfort, distension, meaning actually sticking out of the stomach that is interfering with your quality of life and it's really uncomfortable. So is that directly related to how many bowel movements we're having a day? It can be, but not always. So if you're constipated, you're more likely to experience this bloating just because things aren't coming out, so you're backed up. Um, however, there's many people that are still having one or two normal bowel movements per day and still report this bloating and distension and discomfort. And so we're really looking at a couple of things. We're looking at increase in gas production in the intestines, and that can be caused by things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or intestinal methanogen overgrowth, um, which are, where there's just an overgrowth of normal bacteria in that small colon that's creating excess gas production. 
infection, very, very, very common. There's also things like IBS, which in IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, you have something called visceral hypersensitivity that exists a lot of the time. It's a really fancy word for saying that there's a miscommunication between the sensors in your gut and the sensors in your brain that tell you that there's something wrong. And so in people who have visceral hypersensitivity, they're sensing a lot of discomfort and bloating, even though there's actually a normal amount of gas in the intestines. So it's like they have these sensors that are broken. I don't know if you've ever been driving your car and it says the pressure gauge is off and you've got low tire pressure. And it's really common in cars that that pressure gauge is actually just broken. There's a normal amount of pressure in the tires, but the the sensor is broken, the same thing happens in IBS where the sensor is broken, that communication between the gut and the brain is kinked and it's sending signals to you that something's wrong when when something's not wrong. Um, In these people, we can still help to reduce even further the gas production by low FODMAP diets or by treating SIBO if it's there to help with that, but you're really wanting to target that gut-brain connection when something like that comes up. Can you talk a little bit more about what a low FODMAP diet is and why it seems to be so effective for people. Yeah, so low FODMAP diet is going to be a diet low in fermentable carbohydrates. So the word FODMAP is just an acronym that explains the oligo, mono, polyols, all the different carbohydrates that are fermentable in the intestines. And when we say fermentable, it means that our gut bacteria break it down and produce gas as a, as a byproduct. So you're actually increasing gas production when you're digesting these foods from the microbiome. That gas that's produced touches those sensors in the gut and says, hey, there's a little bit of pressure here. A lot of people don't notice it at all, and it doesn't really matter. When you have visceral hypersensitivity or when you just have a increased sensitivity for producing more gas based on these FODMAPs that you're consuming, some people will actually produce more gas, then that distension is going to be really uncomfortable. And that's like, I'm bloated, I feel nine months pregnant, I can't button my pants, like I don't even have an appetite, really common things that people will say with that. And so doing a low FODMAP diet for a short period of time, we usually do it for four to eight weeks, can really significantly lower symptoms. And just like we talked about at the beginning, you bet we're going to start to reintroduce those FODMAPs and determine which of those groups is actually causing the issue. So you don't have to be on a strict low FODMAP diet the rest of your life. In your experience, what are some of the worst FODMAP offenders? Yeah, so... The one that a lot of people are desensitive to is going to be the legumes and beans. Um, So beans and legumes notoriously cause gas for a lot of people, even if you don't have IBS. Um, So those ones, a lot of times you can try to slowly increase your intake and become more adapted to digesting those, but that's a big one. Um, Other ones are going to be lactose. So dairy is going to be an issue for some people, but again, not all. And then things like cabbage, broccoli, Um, cruciferous vegetables can be more gas producing for some people. Um, But if you don't have gas or bloating, don't take these things out. Like we said, we want the most diverse diet possible. And in terms of bloating for those who may be a little bit bloated, do you have any general best practices in terms of foods to enjoy and potentially reduce? Yeah. So consider working with somebody on a low FODMAP diet. Again, we don't want people to get stuck on it because usually you can have a pretty diverse diet with that. Um, The other thing is to consider is to be eating more discrete meals versus grazing all day long. 
So it's really common in these people that their appetite is a little bit lower. So they'll just be kind of picking all day versus having breakfast, then having lunch, and then having dinner, maybe a snack. And the difference between that is if you're grazing all day long, you're not allowing for as many repetitions of something called the migrating motor complex or the MMC. So in your small intestines, we have this mechanism of housekeeping that when you're fasted for about 90 minutes, it triggers that migrating motor complex to come in and to start to sweep the contents of the small intestines through so that you eventually clear it, have a bowel movement and can eat again. And this is a really important mechanism because it's also sweeping the gas through. It's sweeping some of the bacteria through too. So that can really help to reduce bloating is to avoid the snacking because all of the snacking and grazing throughout the day will shut off that migrating motor complex. You have to be fasted for about 90 minutes for that to be initiated. So I, I want to spend some time on this because I've heard all sorts of different theories on meal timing. I've heard some have a, a hard line, you know, you must wait four hours between meals or five hours and then two hours and then how much, and then you start to get in the macros if we're talking about protein and muscle protein synthesis. So in your view, is it is it 90 minutes? Like if you're going to eat, like it's got to be like, do not eat within six. It's got to be 90. So it's going to be different for everybody. But 90 minutes is about when the migrating motor complex is starting to be triggered. So if you just ate breakfast 15 minutes later, you're probably not going to have a migrating motor complex go through. So on average, about 90 minutes. Some people, it's a little bit shorter than that. But if you keep fasting for a few hours, you'll have maybe more rounds of that migrating motor complex because it will keep kind of the sweeping mechanism going through. Um, but it's very determinant on all of your goals and nuance for the person at hand, right? So if you're also trying to get, gain 10 pounds of lean muscle, then you're going to have to have some more regular meals to do that. So how much is the bloating actually causing issues in your life? Is that the main priority there? In which case I would recommend at least having like three hours of fasting between your meals. Um, but it's so person dependent. So as I, you know, sip my mountain Valley water, what role do you think hydration plays in terms of our gut health and meal timing? And, and do you have a, a theory on when you should you consume water? Was it between meals with meals? Yeah. So uh, dehydration is a leading cause of constipation, slows down the GI tract. You need that stool and the contents in your intestines to be hydrated in order to move through in a normal amount of time. So it's a huge aspect of gut health. Um, I know myself, I don't drink enough water, so I have mine in front of me too. Um, when it comes to bloating too, another thing to consider is carbonation. So drinking sparkling water is amazing. I love it. It doesn't bother me. But with some people with bloating, taking out the carbonated water can actually help to reduce the bloating because you're actually not drinking air, right? Um, so that's something to consider. In terms of with meals or without meals, something to consider is the distension that will happen if you're drinking a lot of fluids with your meal. So if you're dealing with full bloating, feeling kind of like blah after a meal, and you're drinking a liter of water with those meals, consider taking that out and drinking it between your meals instead, because it's going to reduce the volume of contents that are in your, or in your stomach when you're digesting that food. 
Um, same with reflux. So if you have reflux, then consider taking your, your fluids and doing them between meals versus with meals just to reduce the pressure that's in the stomach at the time of digestion. Can you have little sips here and there? Totally. That's not going to affect anything. But if it's large quantities of fluids and you have these types of issues, then consider spacing them out. Interesting. So something that has always done wonders for my GI tract is coffee. Every morning I do the same thing. I wake up, I have my electrolytes, I have about 32 ounces of water, and then I, I make our coffee black every morning. And then soon after the coffee, boom, I have my bowel movement every day. If it doesn't happen, something's off. Can we talk about coffee? We have a lot of coffee drinkers. I love black coffee. We can talk about coffee. I love coffee. I read something that said like it's one of the most, um, when you look at antioxidants, it's one of the most antioxidant-rich foods that Americans consume is coffee too. So it's got a lot of benefits when it comes to that. I'm nothing against coffee. So if you do well in terms of it doesn't increase anxiety, doesn't make you feel jittery, anything like that, then I'm like, go for it. Not a big deal at all. Some people it can cause some reflux in, but if that's not you, then enjoy it. I wouldn't think twice about it. And um, I wish I was, I, I get a little jittery, so I can't do a ton of coffee, but otherwise I totally agree. So coming back to the microbiome and stool testing and, and where we are today, something that we've been talking about for, I think it's, a, it's like a decade now, as the future, this is going to be the future and it's fecal transplants. And I'm fascinated by the concept, a little gross, but you know, intuitively it makes a lot of sense. Where are we with fecal transplants? Fecal transplants. I don't know how much your audience knows about it, but FMT or fecal microbiota transplantation is when you take the stool of somebody who is healthy, we call that the donor, and you implant it usually via enema or colonoscopy into somebody who is sick, but who could be benefiting specifically from changing the microbiome composition of their colon. And so... Currently in the United States, um, FMT is approved for the treatment of Clostridium difficile infections, C. diff infections. C. diff, it creates a pseudomembranous colitis, can be life-threatening, especially in the elderly population. And so we know that FMT actually works for these individuals. It's treatment resistant, so they still want you to go standard of care and use antibiotics first before treating these individuals with FMT. But for treatment resistant um, C. diff, then we can use FMT and we do that in our practice with those individuals. Um, however, there's a ton of other research around FMT, which is not FDA approved yet, but is super exciting. So a lot of the ones that we focus on in my practice are the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease, things like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. These are diseases where there's inflammation in the intestines that's causing symptoms, most commonly diarrhea, but bloating, cramping, abdominal pain as well. Um, and then blood in the stool is really common too. And there's been some really pro promising research around FMT use for the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. And so currently you're not allowed to treat IBD with FMT in terms of, it, I shouldn't say allowed, it's not FDA approved currently. Um, there are products now available. So the first approved FMT product came to market this past summer. And there's two right now, it's uh, Rebiota and Boust. And these mean that there's prescribable 
um, FMT products that we can actually write scripts for and our patients can go and get if they have C. diff infections. So before you had to go through like donor screening banks and get donor stool from different laboratories. So it was logistically a nightmare and now it's becoming much more streamlined with these FDA approved medications that are FMT. So is this the future? If look, look, I, many would agree that so much of disease begins in the gut. And so is this a vehicle to potentially treat disease in the future? It's definitely something that we're interested in. Do I think it's going to be a panacea for all GI issues? Absolutely not. So I think that it's going to be a really effective and um, potentially widespread tool for different GI issues, but those would only be the issues that are dealing with issues in the gut microbiome, um, especially in the colon, but could be in the intestinal tract in general. So there's things that just don't have as much of a, like the microbiome isn't as big of a contributing factor to them, right? So that would be the one mechanism where if it is related to the microbiome, then this may be a, a tool that will come out in the future. So in terms of the GI issues and people you see in your practice, would you say a lot of it is due to poor nutrition or uh, toxic load or stress or uh, sleep, all of the above? What, what are you seeing a lot of right now in terms of what's driving GI issues? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that are driving them, but we're looking at stress probably being the biggest one. Um, so stress, we can talk about IBS a, a little bit more in depth, but stress is a huge both trigger and then um, perpetuating factor in irritable bowel syndrome. And, and we know that. Um, that's going to be a really, really big one. The way that we eat, I think, contributes as well in various forms, whether it's ultra restriction or whether it's binge eating and eating too much in one sitting. Both of those things are going to contribute to GI issues. Um, and then it, it's also feeding into the stress again. But when we're consuming food and we're working or we're in the car and we're in traffic, we're consuming food in a place where we're not in that parasympathetic nervous system. We're not in a place to actually digest our food. And so no wonder why we're having reflux or just dyspepsia or, you know, just feeling a lot after we eat. So I think that's a, a big contributing factor as well. Then you have the overprescribing of antibiotics. So it's not that antibiotics are bad, but the overuse of antibiotics is definitely going to be affecting our gut microbiome. So it's not uncommon for us to see that when somebody goes to their doctor and they have a viral infection that may very well clear on their own, they're getting prescribed an antibiotic. So antibiotics don't treat viruses, they treat bacterial infections. So there's things like upper respiratory tract infections, things like that, that, you know, a lot of the times we probably should be waiting a little while to see is this going to clear on its own instead of going right to the Z-Pack. Um, and they're life-saving. So we should use them when we need them. Like definitely a fan of using antibiotics appropriately, but the overuse of antibiotics is definitely going to be something that will harm our gut. And things like alcohol too, right? Alcohol is a direct irritant to the gastrointestinal tract. So when it comes to health, I don't think there's really any amount of alcohol that I would see as health promoting. And then I know that there's the caveat of it brings people together and it's a social contributor and that's totally fine um, in really small quantities. Like I get it, but, you know, and especially in higher quantities, it's definitely an irritant to the GI tract. Look, I think a lot of people are excited about 
the future of health, fecal transplants, I think are going to play a role. Are there biomarkers that you think will pay more attention to in the future to assess our health? Yeah. Health in general we're talking about or GI? Both. Both. Okay. Um, absolutely. So when we look at biomarkers, when people come in to see their doctor, um, at our practice, we run way more tests than your conventional primary care would run. And so we actually have markers right now that we can use that just aren't being utilized as readily in, in most medical practices. Um, so one of those things is grip strength. So if you come in and you see me in person and you're here for a preventative wellness exam, I'm doing a grip strength measurement on you. We're determining how strong is your grip. Grip strength has been a better predictor of cardiovascular mortality rates um, compared to systolic blood pressure levels. And we think the correlation there is just because if you're stronger, you're going to be healthier in general. Um, but that's something where most doctors aren't running that. It's available to to us now and should definitely be utilized. Uh, along the same lines for, for heart health, a standard lipid panel is not even close to being as in-depth as you'd want to be to measure risk for cardiovascular disease long-term. Cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of both men and, and women by far in the United States, and it's something that we should be paying extra special attention to because if we think that we're immune to it, um, you know, the numbers are staggering when you look at that. But a, a lipid panel is only going to give you your LDLC, your triglycerides, your HDLC. Um, it's not going to give you a, a full measurement of what's going on. We can measure things called apolipoprotein B or LDL particle, LDLP, LP little a is another one. And those are things that I'm like, everybody should be asking their doctor to run. And I just had somebody who went to Kaiser, asked their doctor to run it and they ran it for them. So sometimes it's just asking, but those are really important indicators because they're much more predictive of the risk for atherosclerosis, meaning plaque starting to form on the arteries. That's going to predispose you to a cardiac event from happening or stroke or things like that. Um, so just using the tools that we, we currently have. Similarly, fasting insulin levels or an oral glucose tolerance test. You know, you can do these. Your doctor just has to be open-minded to, to ordering them, but that's going to give you a little bit more of an in-depth look at how your metabolism is functioning. Are you showing any early signs of insulin resistance that are there? So those are a few other tests that we'll run in our practice. And along the same lines, an omega-3 index. So omega-3s are fatty acids, and um, Americans typically don't consume enough omega-3s. They're from things like sardines and wild-caught salmon, trout, things like that. Um, but average in the United States have an omega-3 index between a 4 and a 5, and the ideal is an 8 to a 12% omega-3 index. And just to get like some relative information about what that different actually means. So if you have an index between a four and an eight, there's a 40% reduced risk of acute coronary syndrome, like a heart attack, 40% reduced risk. And if you're greater than an 8% on your omega-3 index, it's a 80% reduced risk of acute coronary syndrome compared to if you were less than 4%. So, you know, Definitely a reason. This test can be like 40 bucks. You can you can get it yourself online. Uh, well worth it in my mind. 
Um, we have things like homocysteine, also a measure readily available to at conventional lab companies. Tells us a little bit about inflammation and your ability to methylate in the body, which is just adding a methyl group to things. But it turns on and turns off how we make different hormones and inflammatory pathways. Um, but the reason we run it is that having a homocysteine level below like a 9.5 reduces your risk potentially for a mild cognitive impairment and stroke later in life, especially if you've already had one cardiac event. Um, and then, you know, potentially some genetic testing. So one that I run on most of my patients is going to be ApoE4. ApoE is the name of the test. We're looking for the ApoE4 allele. So with that, you get a pair of genes from your, your mom, a pair from your dad. And what we're looking at is from both of them, what type of ApoE allele did you receive? So ApoE4 is the one that's associated with a higher risk for Alzheimer's dementia. And some people will say like, oh, I don't want to know that. Like, I'd rather not know. And my thing is, I get it. If you don't want to do it, that's totally your choice. But ApoE4 is not a deterministic allele, meaning if you have it, it doesn't mean with 100% certainty you're ever going to get Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's is something that has a lot of lifestyle things associated with it that are preventable. So with those individuals, and I'm one of them, I have an ApoE4 allele, I would just want to be more cognizant of making sure your lipid levels, your LDLP and your ApoB are well below the threshold so we don't have atherosclerosis forming, especially in terms of micro, microvascular issues in the brain. We want to make sure that your blood pressure is really good. We want to make sure that you're exercising, your cardiorespiratory fitness is good. We want to make sure your sleep and stress levels are great. So there's actionable things there. Um, but these are all things, you know, and I'd add a DEXA scan into that too, that we look at to make sure that people are not just not sick, but we want people to be really healthy. Couldn't agree more. You, know, you mentioned DEXA scan. Let's bring it back to to body comp and how we're conflating weight, specifically weight loss and body comp. How do we get better there in that conversation? Yeah, so um, the measurement that we use more readily in medicine is called your BMI, your body mass index. And that's just gonna be your weight to your height ratio. And it's useful, it's, it's more useful than just looking at weight alone. Um, however, there's something that we need to take into consideration and that, that is that you can be a normal body weight so you can be have a totally normal BMI level, but you can have a really high body fat level. And in those individuals, we still see higher risks for things like metabolic diseases and cardiovascular disease. So it's not enough of an indicator there. So that's why we look at body composition. So body composition is now taking it one step further and you're able to measure how much body fat and how much lean body mass do you have to determine your risk, especially for, for heart disease, but honestly, all-cause mortality. And a lot of the times I see po people super focusing on the body fat. When, when you think of body comp, what's the first thing that, that comes to your mind when you think about it? Well, for me, it's, it's how much lean muscle mass you have, your relation between muscle mass and body fat. Because it's not about the weight. Yeah, because BMI, for example, if you're very muscular, your BMI is going to be totally out of whack because muscle may, weighs more than fat. And I think the problem, I don't know why, I guess maybe it's easy, but we, we started this thing called the scale. So we go on the scale, we look to the, po the pounds go up or down. So I could be losing weight, but becoming more unhealthy if I'm losing lean muscle mass. 
And, I, and conversely, I could be gaining weight, but I'm getting a lot healthier because I'm gaining lean muscle mass and losing body fat. So the scale's kind of, you know, not so helpful. Yeah, great explanation. And I give the one of Gronkowski. So Gronkowski, I don't know if he's still in the Patriots, but he's a football player, right? I clearly don't follow. Um, but if you look at his... Retired. Yeah, okay. He's retired. He's not even playing anymore. I need to update my my source. But um, he, if you looked when he was playing, at least, I don't know where he's at now. If you looked at his BMI, he's considered obese. So if you looked at just his BMI, he falls into the category of obese. But if you look at his body comp, or honestly, if you just look at him with his shirt off, you know that he's a healthy guy. Like you can see his abdominal muscles. Um, and so that's really the difference between body comp and BMI. It's exactly like you said, it doesn't give us a ton of tangible data that we can work with. So when we look at um, body composition, you can measure it in a bunch of different ways. We use the DEXA scan because it's super accurate. It gives us really reliable information in comparison to some other ones. Um, but I love that you said lean body mass is what you think of. A lot of people, when they hear body composition, they're focusing on the body fat piece, which is definitely a piece of it. And we want to focus on that too. But just as importantly, or almost more importantly, is the lean body mass. How much muscle mass do you have on you? Because you could have a really optimal body fat percentage, but still not have enough muscle on you. And in which case, we still want to treat that and make sure that we're addressing the, the muscle mass. Muscle mass and mortality rates have a very um, inverse relationship, meaning that if muscle mass goes lower, mortality rates go higher and they're, they're pretty linear. And, and the opposite is true as well. There was one study that looked at skeletal muscle mass and the risk for mortality associated with um, low muscle mass was higher in people that had a higher BMI. So that's where we see the greatest risk where you're overweight, but you're also under muscled. Um, and when you're over 65 and you have a low muscle mass, the risk for all-cause mortality increases by 56%. So it's not like a little thing that we're talking about here. So for those optimizers, where, where do you like to see women and where do you like to see men in terms of those percentages? Yeah. So when we're looking, do you want to talk about body fat or lean body mass first? Where do we want to dive in? Whichever you prefer. Okay. So for body fat, I look at percentiles when we're looking at body fat and it's really, it's going to be different based on your age and your gender specifically. Um, so for women, a healthy body fat percentage is you're looking around like the mid twenties, even the upper twenties, you can be totally healthy. Um, when women go below 20% body fat, they start to lose their menstrual cycle and can have some hormonal issues that happen. So that's, you know, lower is not necessarily better, especially for women. Um, men can tolerate a lower percent body fat. So men can easily be in the low 20s and the teens and be really, really healthy. Um, but even for men, I don't want to see a man at 2% body fat. We see other issues come up with too much leanness that can happen as well. And then when we talk about muscle mass, I'm also looking at percentiles um, for muscle mass. And so this one's hard to actually to discuss because what you're going to do, what I do with my patients is I get how much muscle they have on their arms and legs specifically. 
I've made like a little spreadsheet. I'm such a geek. I like type it in there. But what I get is a number that pops out, which is your appendicular lean mass index, which is how much muscle do you have on your arms and legs in comparison to how tall you are. And then we have a graph that we can put in and say, what percentile are you at for your age and your gender? And my goal for my patients is to be above the 70th percentile for their age and gender, meaning that only 30% of, let's say it's a woman, 30% of women that are 40 years old would have a higher muscle mass index than you. I want you to be in the higher range because what happens as we age is that we all lose muscle mass. And so I want to have a buffer for all of my patients there so that as they lose it, when they hit their 90, you know, their 90s, they still have enough muscle mass to do all of the things that they want to do. Um, and that's a pretty high percentile. So most women coming in to see me aren't there. So we're almost all of my patients, I'm trying to put more muscle on them as one of the goals. Use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and for women, the other part of muscle mass is directly related for to bone density, not just women. This is men too. But, um, you know, I'm always saying like the things that you're most likely to die from are heart disease for sure, but hip fractures are up there too. So as we age, um, if you're over 90 years old and you're a man, the risk of you dying from a hip fracture is 40% after one year of getting your hip fracture. It's insane. It's a high number. You know, it's the the, the stat I've ever repeated on the show numerous times. If you're over 65, there's a one in four chance you'll you'll fall. If you fall once, you're twice as likely to fall again. If you fall and break your hip, there's a essentially as high as a 40% chance you'll die within a year. And I always say it's not necessarily because of the fracture itself, but it's the complications from surgery. It's the infection. It's the being immobile. It's the depression. It's all the things that can go wrong. And this one, again, I've said this, like I've seen this happen, like anecdotally. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we've all heard of somebody older breaking a hip and then never leaving the hospital. Rapidly deteriorate or they just rapidly deteriorate. It's sad. It's sad. I know you mentioned in terms of the the markers, you talked about homocysteine. ApoB is a big one. We've talked about this on the show. We've had Peter Tia on. Courage, anyone who's concerned about CVD, get their ApoB. I'm curious, where do you like to see ApoB levels for people? ApoB levels, I like to see my optimal is below 60. It's very rare you'll see that in somebody who's not on a medication. I've seen it a few times, but pretty rare. Um, and so it depends on their other risk factors for heart disease as to what level I'll start treating them at. It's very dependent on their family history and, and current. But ideally, 60 is you know the, the real sweet spot for ApoB just to take that you know, and say, hey, the ApoB is not contributing right now to to potential heart disease risk factors. Colleen, my wife is 59. When she got it, I couldn't believe it. I was like, you need to eat more meat. She eats, she eats meat too. She eats grass-fed burgers like probably once a week and she had a 59. It's like, wow. She's genetically blessed. And like, I think that's important to realize too. It's like, I, there's so many times people come to see me and they're like, but I'm doing everything right. Like I'm eating a ton of vegetables. Like I don't eat a ton of fat. Like I'm, you know, I'm exercising, I'm doing everything right. And they're blaming themselves for having these elevated LP uh, or LP little a or ApoB levels. And I'm like, Hey, the, the amount of the, this is genetic is so big that you can't blame yourself for these things. If you're doing everything right. 
Agreed. And LP Little A specifically is one you can't really do much about. It is what it is, but everyone should test for that because if it's sky high, you're going to have a problem and you need to take, you need, need a pharmaceutical intervention. And APOB lifestyle can take you a long way. So those, those two are very telling. Uh, we covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything else we didn't touch on that you'd like to touch on or perhaps leave our audience with some words of wisdom before we go? We could talk about visceral adipose tissue. You may have talked about that with another guest though. So, but that would be a long thing, Matt. Let's go with the the juicy fat before we... <laughs> I like that, the juicy fat. Yeah, so when we talk about DEXA scans, when we're looking at percent body fat, that measure um, doesn't tell us a ton about where the fat is. So if we're just looking at your overall percent body fat, it matters more how much of that body fat is going to be visceral adipose tissue, that, or how much of it is subcutaneous fat. So subcutaneous fat is the fat that's between like the skin and the fascia, and then your visceral fat is around your actual organs, your liver, your spleen, your kidneys, things like that. And the visceral adipose tissue has a much stronger positive correlation versus body fat to both blood pressure, triglycerides, LDL cholesterol, insulin resistance, um, as well as an inverse correlation to your HDL cholesterol. And so, we really wanna make sure we're looking at more so the visceral adipose tissue as being the biggest indicator for cardiovascular risk when it comes to where your fat is located. And the DEXA scans give us that information, most of them do at least. So it's gonna tell you your absolute number for how much visceral adipose tissue was seen on the DEXA. And we wanna get that level lower for, for majority of people, um, but much more of a problem versus just having fat around, you know, sub cutaneous fat that exists. Well, this is where the, the phrase skinny fat comes in. Someone who is lean and you look at them and they look lean, but if you go under the hood, so to speak, with the DEXA scan, the, the fat is around the organs where is like, that's where you don't want it. You, you, you argue you probably want it around the belly and other areas instead of the organs. Yeah. The last place you want it is around the organs. Having like fat around your hips, butt, and thighs is not as big of an issue as around that midsection where the organs are. Um, most exes will actually give you that ratio, actually. They'll give you something called an android to gynoid ratio. And so your android fat is the fat that is around the midsection, and your gynoid fat is the fat that's around your hips, butt, and thighs. And we really want that level to be less than one, the ratio. So we want the ratio to be less less than one for men. I like women to be less than 0.8. Um, and, and that's another you know indicator that you can get, but you're totally spot on. You can't size somebody up and say, this is how much visceral tissue, adipose tissue I think you have. Most of the time, like if you're trained in it, like you can look at somebody and be like, I'm guessing your body fat's around 30%. Um, but you, it's impossible to say like, oh, I think you've got about a pound of visceral adipose tissue around you. You just can't do that without doing it tests like this. I am due for my DEXA scan. I've got my marching orders. Mary, thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. This was a pleasure.